Good morning. Good to see you here this morning. Uh, we're going to be studying in the book of Matthew. If you want to get out your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 26. What is a sellout? Uh, you know anybody who's a sellout? Uh, have, you, have you really even heard that phrase very much anymore? It's almost as though uh, being a sellout is something that people just shrug about and just go about their business. Uh, no big deal, you know. Uh, somebody betrays, uh, essentially a, a sellout is to knowingly act against or betray a previously held allegiance uh, so that they can acquire some benefit. In other words, somebody who uh, betrays the trust of, of somebody else so that they can get something out of it. Um, we know plenty of celebrities, we know plenty of politicians, we probably know plenty of family members and friends and co-workers uh, who have sold out in some sense. They've betrayed our trust. Uh, they've gone against what we know, what they know they should have done. And maybe we look at ourselves and we see in some instances where we have done similarly. Uh, and maybe we've, we've justified it and maybe we've said it's okay, it's no big deal because of this or that. Uh, it's okay to go against what I said I was going to do or what I said I believed or something along those lines. Uh, but we should be people who don't do that, right? I mean, that's, that's essentially who we should be. We should be type of people who do not do that. We recognize when other people do that against us, that's evil. And so we shouldn't be going and doing something like that. This morning, we're going to be studying about the biggest sellout uh, that, that we read in scriptures, uh, the, the man who betrays Jesus. And it's beginning a study of the section that tells us about Jesus being crucified. As we go through chapters 26 and 27 of Matthew, I expect that we'll be very amazed, but hopefully we're alarmed. Because as we read these things, as we study about these men and women who do the opposite of what they were doing, you know, supporting Jesus and rooting for him, I hope that in some ways we understand that that could very easily be us. That we could on one hand be excited about Jesus and happy to have Jesus give us all the blessings that he's offering us, but then whenever Jesus asks too much of us, we could very easily turn against him as well. But as we study through this, I hope also that we'll be excited and encouraged to see that our Lord loves us so much that he was willing to endure a period of time when those who appeared to love him weren't there for him. When they sold out, when they betrayed the trust that he had given them. It's not an easy text for us to study through, but uh, it's a very important text for us to understand better. And I hope that we're able to do that together. Uh, I'd like to start, instead of starting in verse 1 of chapter 26, I'd like to start in verse 14. Because this is the end of the section we're going to be studying today, but it is really the, the centerpiece of what, what's going to be happening throughout this entire section. In verse 14 of chapter 26, it says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, 
What will you give me if I can deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas Iscariot. Who is he? He's one of the 12. When you think about the 12 disciples, what should immediately come to your mind is men who were willing to leave everything. Leave their families, leave their jobs, leave their possessions behind in order to follow after Jesus and sacrificially serve him. That's who these 12 men are. And Judas is one of them. Judas is a man who left everything, renounced everything in order to follow Jesus. Judas is a man who was there when Jesus was performing miracles, when Jesus was walking on water, when Jesus was healing every disease, when Jesus was teaching wonderful truths from the Bible, from the Old Testament, when Jesus was rebuking and condemning the religious leaders. Judas was there the whole time. But in this text we read Judas gives it all up. He's not going to follow Jesus anymore. He gives it up for 30 pieces of silver. What happened? Why did Judas fall away? Go back to chapter 26, verse 1. Let's understand the scenario that leads up to this event. It says in verse 1, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. First thing we notice is uh, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, right? He has just preached a sermon uh, in chapters 24 and 25 about the destruction of Jerusalem, explaining to them the destruction that's going to happen and helping them understand that they need to be ready for that day. And after he finishes that, uh, he goes on to tell them this. After two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This is the reason why the judgment is coming, because they are going to crucify Jesus. Jesus knows this event is going to happen. In fact, if you've been studying with us in the book of Matthew, you've seen this foretold by Jesus on multiple occasions. In chapter 16, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Chapter 17, verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day and they were greatly distressed. 20, verse 18 See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Jesus knew he was going to die, and he, he foretold it. He predicted it. He said, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed there. But he also said, then I'll be raised. And he told them that three times to prepare them for what's about to happen. And then he comes into Jerusalem, just like he said he would, 
And he shows up rebuking the Jews and rebuking everybody who is not believing in him or trusting in him. Saying that this is a, fruitful, a fruitless city. There's no fruit here. It's like a barren fig tree. And he curses a fig tree to set it all up. And he goes on to tell them about the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to fight against the religious leaders. And, and win all the debates that, that they have against them. And then he foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. And now after saying all of that. He finishes all these sayings. And he says this. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now he tells them the time. It's going to happen at Passover. It's going to happen in two days. I will be crucified. As I told you before, I tell you again, I will be crucified. And then we read in verse 3, the chief priests and the elders of the people gather in the place of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. We read, at the same time, while Jesus is, is talking to his disciples, explaining things to them, the religious leaders have had enough of Jesus, and they start plotting together. They come together with the elders all at, at the high priest's house, Caiaphas, the high priest, and they start plotting together how they might kill him because they want him dead because he has caused them so much grief by rebelling against their religious uh, norms that they have. But what we read here is interesting. It says... Kind of something that's contradictory to what Jesus said. Jesus said after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So we might think, oh, okay. Um, so maybe he's not saying it's on the Passover, but, but maybe it's later because look at what they say. Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Religious leaders did not want to crucify Jesus during the feast. Uh, the Feast of Passover is a time when, when all of the Israelites would come down to Jerusalem to remember when God redeemed them from Egyptian slavery. You remember the last plague? Uh, there's a plague against uh, Egypt that the firstborn would be put to death, and all the Israelites were told to take the blood of a lamb and, and spread it on their doorpost, and death would pass over them. Uh, and they would not die. They were saved from death. And that was what the Passover was all about. And they would come together for that. Well, there's also another feast that's attached to that called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that would last from uh, the first day, the day of Passover, seven days. And they would start preparing for it the day before. They would have to remove all the leaven from their house in order to be sure that they are unleavened. Uh, as they remember that they're going to be going off uh, and they're not going to have enough time to let the yeast rise on their bread. So there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover happening at the same time. And the, the religious leaders say, we're not going to kill him during the feast. We're not going to kill him during this seven-day period because we want to enjoy our feast. And if we, we do it during this time, there might be an uproar among the people because everybody loves him. And if we do that, there will be political ramifications. 
high priest is very politically minded. He was established by the Romans. Uh, <clears throat> he was not of a lineage of, of, of Aaron that was, was selected as the best, and he didn't serve for all his life. No, he took the position because the Romans put him there, and he probably bribed his way in. So he has a lot of concern about the political ramifications of this. They're very focused on Rome's uh, punishment for killing Jesus. So they say it's not going to be happening during the feast. We're not going to do anything over the next eight days. Jesus said, you know, after two days comes the Passover and I'll be crucified. Well, which one is it? Well, what we see is Judas changes their minds. Judas changes their plans. Judas brings about the fulfillment of exactly what Jesus says. And Jesus will be crucified on the day of Passover as they're slaughtering their lambs to remember the doorposts and the blood being spread that protected them from the angel of death. Jesus will be God's Passover. But they don't really understand all of that because they don't think Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus knows exactly who he is. And he foretells exactly what he's going to do. Judas obviously doesn't believe it, but he helps to set it up. But we don't go directly from the religious leaders plotting to Judas uh, betraying Jesus. Instead, we read about a little story between the two. And this story helps explain why Jesus did, why Judas did what he did. Uh, look with me at verses 6 through 13. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me with you. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Can you imagine this scene that they come together in Bethany, which is the city just outside of Jerusalem. They, they need to stay a day's walk from Jerusalem for the feast. And, and they come together at Simon the leper's house. Now, I imagine he's not still a leper. If he's still a leper, then they shouldn't be getting in his house, right? This is a man who obviously Jesus has healed from his leprosy, and they're gathering together for a meal before uh, Jesus comes into the city to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover. And as they're all there gathered together, reclining at table, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't sit at a table like we would. They'd be kind of lounging around together. A woman comes in with a flask of alabaster. And this one flask of, of alabaster would have been worth nearly a year's wage. 300, 300 shekels, 300 days wages, nearly a year's wage. Can you imagine this woman coming in with this very costly, expensive flask and breaking it 
against some wood in the house and then pouring it all out on Jesus' head. Can you imagine using a year's salary? 50, 60, 70,000, 80,000, 100,000, I don't know what you, what you normally make, but can you imagine spending an entire year's salary on something that you know is only going to last a day or two at most? But you break it open and you pour it out on his head and the room is just filled with this fragrance. Notice the disciples can't believe it. What is she doing? Does she not know how much that's worth? <laughs> how wasteful that is. Why would she do that? Why would she break open the flask and pour the whole flask on his head? Why would she pour $70,000 on Jesus' head? That money could have been used to feed the poor, they say. They have a better way of spending this money than what this woman has done, and they think that would honor Jesus more than pouring this flask of oil on Jesus' head. But Jesus corrects them. He says, why are you troubling this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. She's prepared me for burial. And everywhere the gospel is preached, as I'm preaching it now, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What a beautiful scene that is. I love this story. What do we learn from all of this? Well, first of all, the amazing thing to me, Jesus is going to be God's Passover lamb. That's what this whole section is laying out for us, is Jesus submitting himself to becoming the Passover lamb for all mankind. That the judgment that is due to us, the death that we deserve, is not going to be given to us because of the blood of Jesus. And it was God's plan all along. It was God's design, God's intention to allow Jesus to suffer and die for Jesus willingly went through it all. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 just calls Jesus our Passover lamb. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we read that, the scripture reading. Uh, we've, we've not been redeemed by gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish. Or spot. And I love Isaiah 53 as well. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We learn from this text Jesus will die at Passover. Jesus will allow himself to be murdered like a lamb being slaughtered and he did that for us willingly because he knew what it meant we also are forced to consider the huge contrast this text gives us a contrast between judas and this woman 
As they both consider Jesus dying before the cross happens, before the understanding maybe of the rest of the gospel happens, they look at it in two different ways. Judas sees that his Lord, his his leader is going to die, and he starts to think there's no way he's going to be resurrected. There's no way that uh, he's going to do what he says he can do. And there's no way that, there, that he's going to deliver on all these promises that he's made to me. And I've given up so much for Jesus. And now I'm going to be without my master and I'm going to be empty-handed. And I need to do something to keep from dying in poverty. I've got to make up for what I've lost. And here's this opportunity that's been given to me. And so I'm going to jump on it and I'm going to make the best use of my time right now to make sure that everything is going to turn out okay for me in this life. Because that's all I'm guaranteed. Whereas the woman hears of Jesus' death. And she believes that he is going to die for our sins. And she wants to serve him with all that she has. She lays everything on the head of Jesus. Mark's gospel says she did all she could. That's what she did. She laid it all down. She gave it all to him. She didn't hold on to anything. She didn't hold anything back. She knew Jesus was going to die. And she didn't think, well, I better get what I can for myself. Or I'm glad I held on to this jar that's my life savings. And I can still live for myself when he's gone. She said, If he's going, I'm going to serve him to my fullest before he leaves. And that was her her mentality, her attitude. And so how do we then apply this text to ourselves? Well, we need to think about ourselves for a little bit here. What are we doing in our lives? Are we selling out or are we buying in? Are we selling out? Are we, are we going back on the promises that we've made to serve the Lord? Have we, have we decided to get more focused on this world? Because maybe we doubt that the promises of God are worth all of this trouble and all of this pain and all of this suffering. You know, Judas was told there's going to be a great tribulation after Jesus dies. We're told... Life is going to be full of persecution and suffering if we live faithfully to God. What are we going to do when those trials come? The easy thing to do is to sell out, to to pursue comfort instead of pursuing service. To pursue what gains me in my life. It makes my life better and funner and more enjoyable. That's the easy thing to do. And I'm, I'm constantly being pulled into that. Because everybody around me is doing that. They are are living for themselves. And this is what I'm being pulled in to do. And as I give in to that, I learn there was no joy in that. That was empty. That was foolish. Judas learned that. There was no joy in betraying Jesus. It was empty and it was foolish. And he tried to give the money back, but it was too late. Selling out is the wrong move. It's the bad decision that we make 
whenever we choose our jobs over God, whenever we choose uh, our friends over God, whenever we choose our possessions over God, whenever we choose our family over God, whenever we choose anything over God, it's the wrong decision that we're making. We should be buying in. We should be giving everything. But know this. On the day when we choose to give God everything, there will be those around us who consider us foolish. Who think that we don't know what we're doing. Who would do things differently if they were us. And they're going to tell us about it. Remember, Jesus sees our foolish trust as a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to him. When instead of holding on to all these things that we think are going to give us happiness, we give them up for him. Are we like this woman? Am I like this woman? Do I believe so much in the promises, the eternal promises that Jesus has made to me that I'm willing to lay it all down at Jesus' feet to serve him with all of my heart, with all of my stuff, with all of my time, with all of my life? Am I buying in or am I selling out? If you're here this morning and you've not made the decision to buy in, to give God everything. I want you to know this is the only way to receive the eternal blessings that he promises each and every one of us. You must renounce all that you have and follow him. If you love your mother or father or brother or sister or sons or daughters or anyone more than Jesus, you're not worthy of him. We have to give it all up and lay it at his feet. And if you're ready to do that, then we're here to help you and encourage you in any way we can. Please come forward as we stand and as we sing.